0: Hello and welcome to the newest episode of the Minority One podcast. Today, what we are going to be focusing on is Larry Elder and specifically Larry Elder's 2016 interview on a show called The Rubin Report, which went viral. And the reason that we are going to be discussing this is that Larry Elder is now running for governor. Of California. He's attempting to unseat current California Governor Gavin Newsom in the upcoming recall election. Now under general terms, uh, under general circumstances, this would seem to be a pretty much impossible feat due to the fact that California is, and has been for quite some time, a deep blue state. But there is a problem, and that problem is the rules that California has for recall elections. So to quote Farhad Manju of the New York Times, and I quote, Elders' candidacy makes the race as serious as a heart attack, especially because the rules governing California's recall election, which will take place on September 14th, are unfair to the point of plausible unconstitutionality. For Newsom to prevail, a majority of voters must oppose his recall. If he were to fail, even just barely short of that majority, the rival who gets the most votes becomes our next governor even if that candidate wins far fewer votes than Newsom, end quote. So, who is Larry Elder? Larry Elder was born in 1952 in Los Angeles, California. Uh, He became a lawyer before eventually becoming a prominent political commentator and talk radio host. Uh, And so, the thing about trying to place Larry Elder on the political spectrum is that Larry Elder has certain views that would, that would be categorized as libertarian, that do sort of differ from what most conservatives believe. However, he also agrees with conservatives on a lot of issues that libertarians traditionally disagree with conservatives on. So Elder could probably best be categorized as sort of a libertarian-conservative hybrid. Uh, so for example, uh, on flag desecration, Elder breaks with most conservatives, laudably so, by saying that he considers flag desecration to be a form of free speech. Uh, He has also commendably spoken out against the war on drugs, and called for the legalization of all drugs for adult use. Elder seems to be possibly backing off of this stance in his run for governor of California. It is not clear that he is backing off of it, so I'm not going to make that accusation, but it seems to be at least a distinct possibility. He may just be de-emphasizing it, however, to try to appeal more to sort of the quote-unquote law and order crowd. But there are many issues on which Elder disagrees with most libertarians and agrees with the sort of uh, the big government conservatives, which is to say, most social conservatives, Uh, most social conservatives are in favor of a strong government, the sort of limited government conservative uh, idea is almost an oxymoron. So, most libertarians are in favor of transgender bathroom rights. Uh, The idea, you know, under libertarian principles, a trans woman ought to be able to use the bathroom that corresponds with her gender, and that in a public restroom the government does not have the right to interfere with that elder has been outspokenly against transgender bathroom rights for a long time Uh, he was also appalled this is not really a libertarian or anti-libertarian issue he was also appalled that a trans woman was featured in playboy larry elder is rather transphobic let's just uh, cut to the chase there it, but so So he is against transgender bathroom rights, which puts him in company with most conservatives and at odds with many libertarians. In very sort of recent weeks, because he is trying to win in a liberal state, he has said that he supports bathroom rights for trans women who have fully medically transitioned. This seems to be at least a more moderate stance than the one he has previously taken, although it is still not very libertarian for the reasons that I've laid out, and certainly not very uh, trans-friendly, because there are many trans women who, for perfectly valid reasons, have not medically transitioned. Uh, But it also sort of begs the question of how exactly Elder proposes to enforce the policy of allowing... Trans women who have medically transitioned to use the women's room, but not to allow trans women who have not medically transitioned to do the same. Is he going to simply have government inspectors outside every public restroom trying to check? You know, I don't know how he proposes to enforce that. Many libertarians also oppose stop and frisk because they argue that it makes a mockery of due process and privacy rights. Elder has defended stop and frisk, as have the majority of conservatives. Larry Elder favors the death penalty, which most libertarians oppose because libertarians tend to see the death penalty as giving too much power to the government. Libertarians tend to support very permissive immigration policies. Larry Elder does not. Larry Elder is a conservative on immigration. With the exception of the drug war, Elder is very conservative and very non-libertarian on policing issues generally he has heavily implied that any level of non-compliance by a suspect justifies agents of the state, in this case police officers, to use lethal force even if the suspect obviously posed no threat to anyone's life. He has also claimed that if a police officer gives somebody a command, that even if the command is illegal, that a person has an obligation to obey that command, which, by the way, would actually give police officers arguably more power than presidents or military commanders, because the president does not have the authority to order somebody to do something illegal. Uh, if you're if you're in the military and your military commander orders you to do something against the law, then you are actually you actually can have a legal obligation to disobey them. He is also in favor. He is in favor of cash bail. Libertarians tend to oppose cash bail, conservatives tend to support cash bail. Libertarians tend to view cash bail as a way for the government to keep people who have not been convicted of a crime in jail, not based on the public safety risk that they pose, but rather on their ability to pay. Because of course, cash bail doesn't keep dangerous criminals in jail. It simply keeps dangerous poor criminals in jail. Under the cash bail system, if you are rich, but you pose a danger to the public, then you can get let out as long as you put up enough money, you can be let out prior to your trial. So I think that calling Elder a sort of libertarian conservative is the best way to categorize him. Elder claims that from 1980 to the present day, that he has consistently voted Republican. Elder, in, uh, about in an interview with the Atlas Society, Uh, about a decade and a half ago, had something rather different to say. Because in that interview, Elder admitted to uh, voting for the Libertarian Party ticket in 2000. Uh, He he made no bones about that. Now he claims that he has always voted Republican except for 1976. Uh, So he was either lying maybe 13 years ago when that interview was made, or he is lying now. I'm not sure which. But as we'll see in the interview there's another important aspect of Elder's stock and trade. Elder has adamantly argued for many years that racism is not a major problem in America today, that there are very few white people, especially conservatives, who hold racist attitudes, and that racial disparities in things such as crime and non-nuclear households are not in any way traceable back to the history of slavery and inequality in this country. That is El- that is sort of a core principle that Elder argues that has probably made him a much larger figure on the right than he would have been had he just stuck to sort of making uh, libertarian talking points, many of which, as we've discussed, uh, many traditional libertarian talking points are at odds with what many conservatives believe. And I would argue that you can see at least some evidence that Elder has sort of de-emphasized the areas where he agrees with libertarians and disagrees with conservatives in order to sort of boost his brand on the American right. So the second man that we need to understand before we dive into this interview is Dave Rubin, the man that conducted this interview, if you can even call this debacle, an interview. So Dave Rubin, uh, was, uh, he has a background as a stand-up comedian. He did some Reddit posts from many years back that have been uncovered, where he said that he was basically a Republican. His narrative, however, is that he was a liberal Democrat for the first 40 years or so of his life, uh, which again, the Reddit posts that he did well before he became famous tell a different story but for a while he was working for a YouTube show called The Young Turks, which is very much a left-wing show. Eventually, he had a falling out with the host of the show, Jank Yuger, largely over what Rubin saw as sort of Yuger's sort of apologia for Islam. So he has since then criticized Yuger with actually some justification, for having denied or downplayed the Armenian Genocide. However, as others point out, he had no issue working for Uyghur for many years despite that and the reason he left by his own account had nothing to do with Uyghur downplaying or denying the Armenian Genocide. So Ruben began hosting a show called the Rubin Report. And the Ruben Report was initially supposed to be a liberal show that would criticize both the right and the left, and would interview and hopefully challenge guests from sort of across the political spectrum. It became apparent to many viewers, the longer they watched, however, that Rubin was essentially setting up a conversion narrative, where he would slowly leave the left, I mean, he said, I left the left, and would join the right. By 2020, Rubin had become full-on MAGA, and had essentially... A, almost a full-on meltdown, because he did a video that has gone viral, I, I bet hundreds of thousands of people at the very least have seen it now, where on, I think, Tuesday night of election week, he bragged about how Donald Trump had won and taunted all the people that had opposed Trump. Once it became apparent, as more and more votes came in, that Trump was about to lose bigly, as Trump would say, Rubin insisted that it was all a hoax or, or a scam, that the election had been stolen by Democrats. Even after Biden was declared the winner, Rubin still maintained that he believed that Trump was going to somehow pull off a win. Obviously, that did not happen. But the elder interview is extremely important to Rubin's narrative, because Rubin claims that this interview was the moment, in which he stopped believing that systemic racism existed, because, in Rubin's narrative, Elder just presented him with these irrefutable arguments and facts. If you go back and watch the entire uh, Dave Rubin-Larry Elder interview from 2016, which, it will help you understand this podcast more, but you also have to be a bit of a masochist to get through it, what will become very apparent is that Rubin was either... Throwing the debate, so to speak. I mean, I don't know if you can call it a debate, but he was either deliberately softballing Elder to intentionally set up this conversion narrative, or he knows nothing about politics or history, despite having been a political commentator for years up to this point. Because a tenth grade debate team member could have done a better job responding to Elders' claims and challenging them. Than Dave Rubin, who, as we've said, had been in political commentary for years by that point, was able to do with Larry Elder. Uh, so essentially what it boils down to is either Rubin sort of planned this and sort of deliberately softballed Elder, or he just doesn't know which end is up when it comes to politics, or maybe it's a combination of both. I'll put it like this. Jesse Ventura, who generally is on the left, was on the Rubin Report at one point, And I would venture to say that Jesse Ventura's WWF matches were less scripted and pre-planned than the interview that Rubin had with Elder. Now this interview is a veritable goldmine of false statements, misleading statements, and weak arguments that a duplicitous host basically continues to allow to go basically unchallenged. I could essentially pick almost any portion of this video except for the one where Elder makes some cogent points about why he at the time opposed the War on Drugs. With the exception of the War on Drugs segment, I could pick almost any portion of this interview and rip it to shreds. Uh, But so, as to avoid having a three-hour podcast episode, I'm going to focus on the most egregious parts, specifically the systemic racism part, because A, that is one of the most egregious Parts of the interview, in terms of just the BS that Elder is allowed to spew, but also I am focusing on it because that is the part that went viral. You can find a bunch of videos on YouTube with titles like The Moment That Larry Elder Changed Dave Rubin's Mind Forever About Systemic Racism. So here we have the first clip that I'm going to debunk. So I'm going to play this clip, uh, try to listen to it as painful as it is because of how bad the arguments are, and then I will lay out why Elder is wrong about this as he is about many other things. Uh, what is a conservative? Well, I don't mind being called a
1: conservative. Uh, conservative. I don't consider it to be a four-letter word, but I really call myself a libertarian. Uh, I believe in Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution, which gives the federal government a small number of things to do, Dave. mint uh, Money, uh, put together an army, um, uh, deal with the borders, a handful of other things. That's it. Uh, welfare, uh, health care, abortion, same-sex marriage, doctor assisted suicide, all the social issues that... The Supreme Court takes up, in my view, they shouldn't take up in the first place. That should be done on a state-by-state basis. That's what I think most conservatives believe as well. So I'm with you on a lot, and I definitely have some libertarian beliefs myself. I think most people are libertarian. They just don't know it. The Founding Fathers were libertarians. The Founding Fathers drafted a document that said our rights come from a power other than individuals, uh... and government doesn't give us our rights we give government our, our, our rights and power and everything else should be left to the states uh... and the individuals so that's how the constitution was started that's how the country was started and i think that's how most americans really feel uh... when they really think about it well that's one of the funny things to me and why i've
2: defended somebody like rand paul mm-hmm. who some, a lot of people would say as a liberal i shouldn't be defending he's a libertarian but he's a libertarian so right. on issues such as uh, legalizing marijuana Mm -hmm. or gay marriage, a libertarian, because you don't want the government in your bedroom, Mm -hmm. you shouldn't care about those issues. And as a liberal, I want people to do what they want and marry who they want.
1: So that's somewhere where a libertarian and a liberal can really sort of join together, right? I think so. However, you have people like Bill Maher running around calling himself a libertarian. Uh, Bill Maher is not a libertarian. He believes in higher taxes. He believes in a minimum wage. Uh, he supported uh, uh, Ralph Nader for for government who wants to take over uh, businesses and have government run them. Uh, so a lot of people use it because it's a sexy kind of term and have no idea what it is. Right. So that's the the economic side of it. Mm-hmm. So
2: you you're sort of he's liberal on the on the social stuff, and in in a way, as a conservative, you're you're actually pretty liberal on,
1: on the conserv- on the social stuff. Right? Again, I believe that same-sex marriage, doctor-assisted suicide, all these kinds of things, abortion, should be done in a state-by-state basis. In California, we had two uh, um, opportunities to vote for uh, or against uh, same-sex marriage. Uh, Proposition 30 and another time when we voted on, I think it was called... Um, issue eight or measure eight. And in both cases, I voted in favor of same-sex marriage. In both cases, I was overruled. Yeah. I have no problem with the idea that the majority of my fellow Americans uh, or, or fellow Californians did not agree with me. I don't believe that I then go to the Supreme Court and cram it down the throats of the other states.
2: Right. Okay. So then that's that's the state's rights issue and, mm-hmm. and sort of... So you would say that the Supreme Court is legislating from the bench or something to that effect? Yeah, I would. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's...
0: Sorry you had to listen to all of that. A lot of crazy statements in there, but because there's so many crazy statements, I wanted to play the whole clip so that I would have more material to debunk. First off, it is not true that most conservatives want social issues decided at the state level. Most Republicans in Congress favored a federal marriage amendment that would have banned same-sex marriage in all 50 states until momentum heavily shifted in favor of gay marriage, And they realized that, as Rand Paul put it, if Republicans insisted on a 50-state policy, sort of a national uniform policy on same-sex marriage, then the result would be legalizing same-sex marriage in all 50 states. But until the momentum shifted that much against them, Republicans in Congress were overwhelmingly in favor of a federal ban on same-sex marriage written into the Constitution. In its 2016 platform, the GOP favored a human life amendment that would have, in practical terms, banned abortion federally. As Attorney General, Jeff Sessions rescinded the Cole Memorandum and tried to have the DOJ go after marijuana sales even in states where it was legal. In 2006, the Supreme Court was forced to rule on doctor-assisted suicide after the Bush DOJ tried to have Oregon's law allowing it struck down. Nor can the Founding Fathers, as a group, be described as libertarian. Many of them backed slavery. Most were disinterested in preventing the government from denying rights to women. Many favored military conscription, in which men would be forced to serve in the military. Uh, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, all favored military conscription, and George Washington helped enact it. The Constitution represented a large expansion of federal power, which was indeed the primary goal of the Constitutional Convention. The Constitutional Convention was not about limiting federal power, rather it was about making the federal government stronger than it had been prior to the convention. The Bill of Rights was added on to make the Constitution more palatable after the document received significant criticism for not including a Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights was also rather limited, in that it failed to prevent governments from doing things such as enforcing slavery, denying rights based on race, sex, sexual orientation, etc. It did not prevent governments from drafting people into the military. It did not prevent the government from policing the bedroom. And it did not prevent the government. It did not prevent the government from suppressing voting rights. Until 1865, the Constitution required runaway slaves to be extradited if they fled to states where slavery was against the law. I consider myself to be pretty libertarian. There are a lot of issues where I break with the left and agree with libertarians. The Founding Fathers as a group, however, were not libertarian, and indeed someone like Bill Maher, on a lot of issues, is more libertarian than most of the Founding Fathers were. Reuben and Elder then define Rand Paul, who, contrary to what Reuben said, very much opposes legalization of same-sex marriage as a libertarian, while Elder dismisses Bill Maher as a libertarian because of of Bill Maher's liberal fiscal views and receives basically no pushback from Rubin on this claim. Now, I am loath to defend Bill Maher, he's a jerk, but there is a major double standard. Elder himself, as we have discussed, supports non-libertarian stances on many issues ranging from stop-and-frisk to the death penalty to transgender bathroom rights to immigration to even corporal punishment in government schools if you look at a really crazy column he wrote a while back in fact he has approvingly cited a supreme court ruling as we referenced earlier to argue that citizens have an obligation to comply with police commands even in cases when the command itself is illegal this speaks to sort of a larger double standard in which somebody can break with the libertarians on a bunch of issues from the right and take conservative positions and still be identified as a libertarian. But if somebody has a lot of libertarian views, but also takes some left-wing non-libertarian positions on some stuff, then the same people who will label Rand Paul or Larry Elder a good libertarian say that these people on the left aren't real libertarians. Elder says that he voted twice for gay marriage in California, but didn't want the Supreme Court intervening to legalize it there. This is probably because it wasn't Elder's marriage which got banned. I also want to mention here Gavin Newsom's record on same-sex marriage. Gavin Newsom, when he was mayor of San Francisco, actually received national coverage in 2004, when most Democrats still opposed gay marriage because Newsom was issuing marriage licenses to same-sex couples. So I would certainly put... Gavin Newsom's gay marriage record up against Larry Elder's gay marriage record any day, and I think you'll find that Newsom has the more libertarian record by far on that issue. Now, Elder's states' rights position here is fundamentally at odds with libertarianism because it means allowing big government to violate individual rights at the state level, Traditionally, libertarianism doesn't care about states' rights, it only cares about individual rights, which can often be violated by state governments.
1: Bunch of nonsense. The number one problem domestically facing this country is a breakdown of the family. And uh, President Obama said it. I didn't. Uh, A a black kid, or a kid, not just a black kid, a kid raised without a dad, is five times more likely to be poor and commit crimes, nine times more likely to drop out of school, and 20 times more likely to end up
0: in jail. Here, Elder criticizes Democrats for convincing African Americans to vote for them by presenting systemic racism as a larger problem than absentee fathers. He then quotes Obama, who is in fact a Democrat, agreeing with him about the negative impact of fatherlessness in order to back up his claim, which seems to be a case of trying to have it both ways. Either Democrats like Obama convinced black people to vote for them by overemphasizing systemic racism and downplaying fatherlessness, or Obama agrees that fatherlessness is the largest problem for black people. Now, Elder seems to have a problem, of or a pattern, shall we say, of lumping together the issue of children growing up with only one parent and kids growing up without a father. Of course, there are an increasing number of kids being raised by same-sex couples, and none of the good arguments about kids being better off with two parents than one parent really work as arguments for kids being better off raised by opposite-sex adoptive parents than they are being raised by gay adoptive parents. Although it's ideal for a child's biological parents to raise them, provided that they are capable of doing so, the argu- this is not an argument for heterosexual adoption being better than gay adoption. For the last 40 years or so, conservatives have had ample opportunities to present compelling arguments that heterosexual couples are better suited to adopt and raise kids than gay couples. They have utterly failed to demonstrate this at every juncture. I don't know what Elder's thoughts are on same-sex adoption, but he seems uninterested in openly stating that the issue is single-parent versus two-parent homes and that gay couples should have equal adoption rights. I suspect that the reason that he is uninterested in saying this is because that he knows it would alienate a very large chunk of his conservative audience
1: what the facts are 965 people were shot by cops last uh, last year and killed four percent of them were white cops shooting unarmed blacks in in Chicago in 2011 21 people were shot and killed by cops uh, in 2015 there were seven uh, in Chicago which is a third black a third white and a third Hispanic seventy percent of the homicides are black on black uh, about 40 per month almost 500 uh, in the Per year last year in Chicago, and 75% of them are unsolved. Where is the Black Lives Matter on that? The idea that a racist white cop uh, and shooting unarmed black people is a peril to black people is
0: BS. This is roughly where we begin the part of the interview that really went viral on the internet and which Rubin has talked about again and again and again. Rubin is asked by Elder what he thinks the worst example of systemic racism is, and in what appears to be an attempt at throwing the debate, if you can call it that, brings up police shootings, but makes very little attempt to defend his position. There are, I'd argue, more blatant examples of systemic racism than this, which Rubin doesn't talk about at any point during this interview. This would include, for example, racial disparities in wealth that are heavily tied to the history of racial discrimination in this country, largely imposed by the government, which is something that libertarians should generally be concerned about. Uh, Another example would be the ability of openly bigoted politicians to frequently win elections, Donald Trump being an example, the repeated failure of Congress to pass a federal ban on racial profiling, and a names and job application study that we'll get to in a bit. We know that Rubin is aware. Of certain other examples of systemic racism, since he tweeted about stop and frisk as an example a while prior to this interview. His failure to bring that or any other examples up here besides police shootings, which again he is not willing or prepared to defend here, suggests that he has either never done much research on these issues at all and has a very short memory, or that he deliberately softballed Elder to set up a quote-unquote political conversion. Elder criticizes Black Lives Matter activists for not paying attention to black-on-black crime. For a self-described libertarian who claims skepticism of government, Elder does not even seem interested in engaging with the argument that acts of violence by agents of the state, of which police officers are an example, represent a special cause for concern. Furthermore, I am unaware of cases in which a black civilian was filmed killing another black civilian outside the parameters of self-defense and was acquitted. But we have seen this with bad cops killing black people in cases, in cases such as that of Eric Garner and Philando Castile. He also focuses on Black Lives Matter, a movement that is openly focused specifically on police violence. And he ignores the myriad of other black people at inst- and institutions on the left who have been very outspoken against quote-unquote black-on-black crime. Now, I will say here, I am using the phrase black-on-black crime to meet and debunk Elder and other people on the right on their own turf, but I have in recent years become increasingly reluctant to use that term generally for this reason. The term is very politically charged, and the reason I say that is that a very disproportionate number of killers are men of all races, and a very large number of their murder victims are other men. But we very rarely talk about male on male crime because it doesn't serve a sort of it doesn't score political points the way that conservatives are trying to do with black on black crime. Now, it is true, of course, that there are serious racial disparities in crime and in crime victimization. African-Americans are at much higher risk than white Americans of being the victims of homicide. And the majority of people who commit homicides against black people are other black people as is the case with white homicide victims. Most white homicide victims are killed by other white people, not black people. But the use of the term black-on-black crime is generally used specifically as a form of whataboutism to dismiss justifiable black complaints about police brutality and other kinds of racial injustices. But to repeat, Elder ignores, by focusing only on Black Lives Matter, he ignores the myriad of other black individuals and black institutions on the left who have been very outspoken against, quote-unquote, black-on-black crime. This includes the Congressional Black Caucus, the Obamas, Diane Latiker, Spike Lee, Jesse Jackson, and Al Sharpton. In the 2010s, African Americans have participated in community protests against violent crime in Chicago, Newark, New York, Pittsburgh, Saginaw, and Gary, Indiana, it's just that all of this stuff rarely gets covered by conservative outlets, and I think we all know why.
1: Democrat. That's right. And, and where's where's the evidence of a lack of social justice when a black uh, suspect is killed by by a cop? Believe me, the media is on it. People are watching it, uh, and uh, and justice will will, for the most part, uh, occur in Baltimore, where Freddie Gray was killed. Uh, Freddie Gray died in a van. I shouldn't say was killed. Died in a van. Yeah. You have a city that's uh, 45% black. Uh, City council is 100% Democrat. The majority of city council is black. The top cop at the time was was black. The number two cop was black. The majority of the command staff is black. The the mayor is black. Uh, The AG is black. Uh, And yet here we are talking about racism. I mean, it's, it's absurd.
0: Elder brings up that when Freddie Gray died in the back of a police van in Baltimore, due in major part to severe negligence on the part of the arresting officers. The city government and BPD were largely black run, and that this means, according to Elder, that systemic racism played no role in Gray's death. This is a fundamental misunderstanding of what many people mean when they say systemic racism. Many people who believe that systemic racism exists argue that because of the history of slavery and discrimination in this country, racial inequality is so entrenched that it becomes self-sustaining, even if many, peop- many of the people in power are not trying to maintain it. What does this mean for Baltimore specifically? Maryland had slavery until the 1860s, and Jim Crow laws until the 1960s. Baltimore had a law in the 1910s which required neighborhood segregation. This all led to massive racial disparities in poverty and crime. These kinds of disparities don't magically vanish just because the Baltimore city government or Maryland state governments stop actively trying to discriminate, and any attempt to reverse their effects takes generations and massive constant effort. These disparities in poverty and crime then lead to disproportionate interactions between police and black people, largely those in low-income neighborhoods. Meanwhile, although many cops are not bigoted and don't treat people differently based on race, there are many cops all over the country who are very much bigoted and do act on it. There are other bad cops who aren't bigoted and just act violently toward any suspect they come across, but because of racial disparities in poverty and crime that, has been brought, that have been brought on by the history of racism in this country, a disproportionate number of the suspects that these cops come into contact with are black. Policies such as qualified immunity and special protections for police officers during investigations, protections which are not, by the way, afforded to civilians, have made it very hard to sue or prosecute bad cops in most of the country. And again, these issues don't automatically just go away just because you elect a certain number of black politicians or hire enough black police commanders.
1: Uh, well, just the facts, I'll tell you something else too. There was just a study, uh, uh, University of Washington, uh, and it turns out cops were more reluctant, more hesitant to pull the trigger against a black, black suspect than a white suspect. Uh, probably because of the fear of being accused of racially profiling and the fear that the civil rights establishment was going to come down on him. So,
0: Elder cites a study from Washington State University, which he mistakenly calls University of Washington, that found cops less willing to shoot black suspects than white suspects. This study relied on simulations— Although the authors attempted to make them as realistic as possible, simulations where a cop would necessarily have to know that they are part of a study are an inherently difficult way to determine what the cop would do in a real-life case. The larger issue, however, is that in order to determine whether racial bias influences police killings, it is not enough to look at what happens once a confrontation with a suspect starts. One must also look at whether racial bias helps make black people more likely to be stopped and confronted by cops in the first place. Obviously, even if cops are equally or less likely to kill a black suspect than a white suspect once a confrontation has begun, blacks are still going to be at greater risk of being killed if they are more likely than whites to get pulled over for reasons that go beyond racial disparities in crime or suspicious behavior. According to a recent study by scholars at Stanford University, and I quote, we assessed racial disparities in policing in the United States by compiling and analyzing a data set detailing nearly 100 million traffic stops conducted across the country. We found that black drivers were less likely to be stopped after sunset when a veil of darkness masks one's race, suggesting bias in stop decisions. Furthermore, by examining the rate at which stop drivers were searched and the likelihood that searches turned up contraband, we found evidence that the bar for searching black and hispanic drivers was lower than for searching white drivers. Finally, we found that legalization of recreational marijuana reduced the number of searches in white black and of sorry of white black and hispanic drivers but the bar for searching black and hispanic drivers was still lower than that for white drivers post legalization our results indicate that police stops and search decisions suffer from persistent racial bias and point to the value of policy intervention to mitigate these disparities end quote it doesn't ta- it does not take a genius to see how all of this will affect disparities in police killings. If a black person is more likely to be stopped by police than an equally suspicious white person, the black person is going to be at a greater risk of being killed.
1: And almost all every one of these incidents, whether it's Eric Gardner in in New York who died because he was selling Lucy's and re- resisted arrest, whether it's Tamir Rice in Cleveland who was twirling around the gun, whether it's Michael Brown in Ferguson uh, who had just uh, committed an ar- strong-arm robbery, almost every one of these incidents involves somebody resisting arrest. Why don't you just do what the police tell you? My dad said, when I get pulled over, have my hand at 10 o'clock, have my hand at two o'clock, say yes, sir, say no, sir. Make sure my paperwork is in order. And if I feel the cop is uh, mistreating me, get a badge number and deal with it later on.
0: Here, Elder blames police killings on black people resisting arrest. He comes dangerously close to implying that any failure to comply, even if you are not being violent, means that somebody deserves to be killed by police. We can see this by how he lumps together the killing of Michael Brown, where there is significant evidence of the suspect actively trying to beat up a cop and take his gun, with the killing of Eric Garner, where we know that Garner was not being violent, and that the cop used a level of force that was completely out of proportion to any threat Garner posed. We have a videotape, showing Garner being confronted by a group of cops for a non-violent misdemeanor, not attacking the officers at any point, and then getting choked to death by an officer who had no reason to fear for his life. In the case of Tamir Rice, there is still a dispute about exactly what happened, but two ex-cops, former L.A. County Sheriff's Deputy Roger Clark, and former Irvine, California Deputy Chief of Police Jeffrey Noble were brought in as expert witnesses and strongly argued that the police used excessive force in this case. Noble had this to say, and it is a lengthy quote, but I believe that his report that he wrote of his assessment of the incident is worth quoting at length. Quote, As officers Garmbach and Lohman entered Cuttle Park from 99th Street, the playground area that included swing sets and the gazebo were clearly visible. On that November afternoon, there was snow on the ground, and the deciduous trees had lost all of their foliage, allowing for a view only obstructed by the thin tree trunks. There is no evidence that anyone other than Tamir was in the park at the time the officers arrived. Tamir was seated by himself at a picnic table under the gazebo. There is no evidence that anyone was at imminent risk of death or serious bodily injury at the time the officers entered Cuddle Park there was no evidence that staying back would gravely endanger the lives of the officers or the lives of others reasonable police officers responding to a man with a gun call would have stopped their vehicles prior to ent- their vehicle prior to entering the park to visually survey the area to avoid driving upon a suspect who may be armed this serves not only to protect the officers but also serves to protect others who may be in the area and it provides both time and distance for the officers to evaluate the situation and develop a plan. It also allows time for other officers to be able to provide assistance. I have conducted walkthrough of the path of the officer's vehicle on November 24th, 2015, via video conference, instead of stopping, surveying the scene, waiting for additional officers, developing a plan, calling out to Tamir from a position of cover behind their car doors as police officers are trained. Officer Garnback and Loman rushed to the gazebo at such a speed that emergency braking caused them to skid their vehicle to a stop, placing Officer Loman between four and a half and seven feet of Tamir as he exited the police vehicle. Because Officer Loman was so close to Tamir and because he had no cover, Officer Loman was forced to make a split-second decision regarding the most serious decision a police officer can make: the decision to use deadly force. End quote. I admit that I have not examined every aspect of this case. It may be that there was not enough evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the shooting was unjustified. Noble's report looks pretty damning, but the arguments by Noble, who I suspect has probably reviewed the case more thoroughly than Elder or myself, show that at the very least the shooting was a lot less cut and dry than Rice didn't comply and therefore had to be killed, which is how elder frames the issue with the goal of scoring political points in a society that is not a totalitarian police state it is reasonable indeed necessary to expect cops to only kill a suspect when the suspect clearly poses a serious enough threat to make lethal force absolutely necessary the idea that any resistance to arrest including nonviolent failure to comply automatically justifies lethal force is something you would expect in a country like China, the Soviet Union, or Nazi Germany. It should be noted that we do, in fact, have significant criminal penalties in place for resisting arrest, especially violently. However, we frequently fail to hold cops accountable for using excessive force. This is a double standard. We can see Elder's feverish need to excuse cops of any blame for any killing of a black person in his reaction to the philando Castile murder, Castile did as instructed when he was pulled over by Officer Geronimo Yanez. Yanez gave conflicting instructions. He asked Castile for his license, told Castile not to pull out a gun when Castile politely let him know that he was carrying. Then, rather than telling Castile to hold off on pulling out the wallet or to, quote, show me your hands, Yanez kept yelling at Castile not to pull the gun out, which Castile said that he was not pulling out. At the same time, since Yanez had asked to see his license and never rescinded or changed the demand to see it, Castile thought he was doing what the officer wanted. Instead of being more clear on what it was that he wanted, Yanez hastily shot Castile while Castile was attempting to comply. Elder blamed Castile for not following the cops' orders, which in this case means being able to psychically interpret contradictory instructions very quickly while somebody is pointing a gun at you. In fact, Elder went so far as to falsely claim that Castile was instructed to, quote, show your hands, even though the dashcam audio, which we all have access to, makes it clear that Yanez never said these words or anything like them. Elder either outright lied about what was on the dashcam footage or was mistaken and never bothered to apologize for slandering a dead man. What this illustrates is that Elder will always move the goalposts with regard to this issue. When a black suspect doesn't comply and is killed, he will use this to downplay or excuse the killing Even if, as in the case of Garner and later in the case of George Floyd, the suspect clearly did not pose a lethal threat to anyone at the time of the killing. When a black suspect tries to comply and gets killed anyway, Elder simply insists against all evidence that they weren't really complying. Another problem is that Elder conveniently overlooks the fact that conservatives routinely oppose policies that would make it easier for innocent people who have their rights violated to comply than sue and receive compensation. For about 20 years, bills were introduced in Congress to ban racial profiling by police, which is currently not explicitly outlawed in many states and towns. By 2019, not a single Republican was co-sponsoring this legislation, and all co-sponsors were Democrats except for Bernie Sanders. The George Floyd Justice in Policing Act, being promoted by Democrats, includes a racial profiling ban. The Republican police reform bill written by Tim Scott does not. Elder generally seems to claim that racial profiling is too rare to be a serious problem, but he's also retweeted an article by Heather McDonald that includes support for police using race as a factor in deciding to search cars even when they aren't looking for a specific suspect of known race. And under qualified immunity, an individual cop cannot be held legally responsible for violating a civilian's rights unless a law that applies to the jurisdiction where the incident took place or a court ruling that applies to this jurisdiction has specifically addressed this exact incident. Now, that's very dense. It's very insider baseball. But what does this mean in practical terms? According to the Washington Post, in an article about a black welder named Clarence Jameson and a white cop named Nick McClendon, quote, Jameson was driving home to South Carolina from a vacation in Arizona when he was stopped when he was stopped by McClendon on july 29, ninth, twenty thirteen, according to the opinion. McClendon testified that he pulled Jameson over in Pelahatchie, Mississippi, because Jameson's temporary tag was folded over so he couldn't make out his license plate number. McClendon testified that he ran Jameson's license, sorry, driver's license and plates before asking the driver if he could search his car for drugs or other contraband. McClendon said Jameson cu- quickly agreed, but Jameson testified that McClendon asked him five times to search his car, and told him falsely that he'd received a call that there were 10 kilos of cocaine in the vehicle. Feeling tired of the conversation, Jameson agreed to the search as long as he could watch what was going on. He testified during proceedings in the lawsuit. McClendon testified that he found nothing during an extensive search before using a dog to sniff the vehicle. After one hour 50 minutes, McClendon finally departed. Jameson testified that he got an estimate that the search caused $4,000 dollars, $4,000 $4,000 worth of damage to the car. His convertible top had to be replaced and his seats restitched. But one by one, judges ruled that Jameson's claims against McClendon had to be dismissed because of qualified immunity. Jameson eventually sued McClendon and others, claiming that his constitutional rights were violated because the search was illegal and he was racially profiled, end quote. Now, the U.S. district judge who last ruled against Jameson wrote that he agreed Jameson's rights were violated, but, but that, quote, the officer who transformed a short traffic stop into an almost two-hour life-altering ordeal is entitled to qualified immunity, end quote. Now, Scott's Republican, Tim Scott's Republican police reform bill, uh, as introduced in 2020 at least, does not address qualified immunity. The George Floyd Justice in Policing Act, however, does address it. Now, while the ending Qualified Immunity Act was introduced by Justin Amash, who was a Republican-turned-Libertarian and outspoken Trump critic, it had 65 Democratic co-sponsors and only one other Republican co-sponsoring. This year, a similar bill was introduced in the House by Democrat Ayanna Presley and had entirely Democratic co-sponsors. With a Twitter advanced search, I was unable to find a single tweet from Elder addressing qualified immunity. He may well be opposed to qualified immunity, but he has never tweeted about it according to a Twitter advanced search. However, with this search, I was able to find 27 tweets in under two minutes with the word comply in reference to police use of force, including at least one tweet lying about the dashcam audio in the Castile case. Larry Elder, so it would seem, knows which side his bread is buttered on.
2: Well, I think it remains a problem. It's not. not, It it may not be systemic in that we have. It's not like you're not being hired because you're black. There's no systemic reason, you know, legal reason that that exists, that kind of thing. But I think that racism as a general uh, theory.
1: I need some some specifics. You gave me the white cop thing. What else? Give me another example where you think is a problem.
2: Well, well. uh, as a black conservative tell me how do no, no, you how
1: do you get people to you're, come around you're, you're the one who made yeah. the assertion that you yeah. think racism remains a major problem in America I asked you to give me an example you gave me white cops going after blacks I, as, as far as I'm concerned you didn't hold it up very well what's the other argument you have what, what what's the other thing?
2: Well, I don't know that it's systemic in that in the sort of macro sense. I'm not, I'm not bad. I just, yeah, I just no, no, wanna, no. I
1: want to know what, what it is you're you're talking. No no about. I, that, that's exactly do. what that's yeah. believe me that's hundred percent. So, so I we can do to, what, to what what is blacks here. are not getting into school. BS that we have a race we have affirmative action. So a black person with a, with an SAT and a GPA uh, of of X will will get into a school faster and easier than a white person with an SAT uh, or a GPA of X. And if going to going to school is a route to the middle class, you can make an argument. Argument that blacks have an easier route to middle to the middle class if you're talking about uh, black uh, b- about poverty um, the poorer you are the more accessible loans and grants are for you uh, the, the, the the problem the biggest burden that black people have, in my opinion, again, is the percentage of blacks, 75% of them, that are raised without fathers. Uh, and that has every other social negative consequence connected to it. Crime, uh, not being uh, able to compete economically in the country, being more likely to be arrested, that's the number one problem facing the black community. And When I hear people tell me about systemic racism or unconscious racism, I always say, give me an example, and almost nobody can do it. So so the family stuff, so mm-hmm.
2: I'll, I'll follow your logic there. Mm-hmm. family stuff. What what can actually be done about that then? I mean, what, because that's, reverse, a, that's re- a big... Reverse flip. the
1: welfare state. Uh, in um, 1890, 1900, you look at census reports, a black kid, believe it or not, was slightly more likely to be born to a nuclear intact family than a white kid. Even during slavery, uh, a black kid was more likely to be born under a roof with his biological mother and biological father than today. What's happened is we launched this so-called war on poverty in the 60s where literally Lyndon Johnson sent people knocking on doors. I I, I lived in the 60s, and people knocked on doors, apprising women of their availability to welfare, provided there was no man in the house. Uh, And we went from 25% of blacks being born outside of wedlock in 65 to 75% right now. And you look at how much money that we spent on welfare, uh, and the lines are parallel.
0: Oh, boy. So in this portion, Rubin continues rambling, clearly not trying to defend his position which further suggests that this was a pre-planned softball interview with the goal of letting Elder win and giving Rubin an opportunity to shift to the right on issues like race. Now this is especially true when Rubin fails to bring up stop and frisk, which was something that he offered as an example of systemic racism less than a year and a half prior to this interview. Elder uses affirmative action to claim that black people have an advantage getting into college, this ignores the myriad of other disadvantages that black people in the aggregate face in applying to schools. One example of this is fewer opportunities in K-12 through education, which ironically Elder references when he mentions later in the interview that many black kids have no choice but to attend failing public schools, but he can't or won't connect the dots about how this could make getting into college harder, or how this ties in to the history of slavery and segregation. Another example is legacy admissions, which tend to favor more white students since a disproportionate number of people with parents or grandparents who went to say Princeton are going to be white. More broadly, the social network that an applicant and their family have access to significantly affects their chances of getting into more colleges, and white kids from old money families Are going to be the primary ones most likely to quote, as the saying goes, know somebody who knows somebody who can help get them into prestigious universities. Elder next claims that poor people have easier access to loans and grants. This is akin to claiming that a cancer patient doesn't have it harder than a healthy person because the healthy person can't get access to cancer treatment. Loans frequently end up saddling poor people with debt, a hardship that someone wealthy enough not to need a loan or to have an easier time paying it off won't have to deal with. Grants frequently also have stringent qualifications a person must meet to receive them, and it tends to be harder to meet these qualifications if, again, a person has received substandard K-12 education. Also, a recent study by scholars at University of Oxford, sorry, University of Chicago and UC Berkeley backed up earlier data showing that submitting job applications with a quote-unquote black-sounding name was less likely to result in job interviews than submitting job applications with a quote-unquote white-sounding name. According to an article in Business Insider, researchers submitted more than 83,000 entry-level job applications to 108 Fortune 500 companies in the U.S. What they found was that applicants with black names had a 2.1% less chance of getting contacted. The the National Bureau of Economic Research, the National Bureau of Economic Research, published a working paper on this study, noting that 7% of all jobs included in the experiment discriminated against black names, but that the number jumped to 20% when looking at the 23 companies that researchers, rely, quote, reliably label as engaged in racial discrimination, end quote. The companies that ranked in the top fifth of the study for racial discrimination were responsible for nearly half the incidents, half the incidents of, quote, lost contacts to black applicants, end quote. In an article published in the American Journal of Sociology, which was published, Prior to the Elder Rubin interview, Deva Pager of Northwestern University conducted a study where she had black people and white people submit resumes that were identical in terms of education, work experience, etc. The only differences were race and criminal record. She found that black applicants with no criminal records were less likely to receive callbacks than white applicants who did have criminal records. Elder then basically attempts to claim that racial disparities in non-nuclear homes for black and white kids did not exist during slavery. He at least implies that they did not exist during slavery, and he outright tries to argue pretty openly that they did not exist in the late 1800s and early 1900s. He further claims that these racial disparities in non-nuclear homes only began after the rise of federal welfare programs. Now Elder seems to refer interchangeably to kids who are born out of wedlock, kids who have a completely absentee parent, and kids whose parents are not together but are both still involved in their lives. These are, in fact, very, very distinct phenomena. A child could be born out of wedlock and raised by a couple who are together but not married. A child could live with a single mother but have a dad who is still an active presence in their lives. Now, having lumped all of this together, Elder claims that 75% of black kids are raised without fathers. And he bases this primarily on out of wedlock birth rates. Now data from the Pew Research Center suggests that the percentage of black kids who have a completely absentee father is much higher than the percentage of white kids, but also much lower than 75% or the 70% that a lot of other conservatives cite. Pew data from from the Pew Research Center suggests that it's probably closer to a 50-50 split. This is certainly alarming, but Elder overstates the numbers to sell a certain narrative regarding race and history. Now, the bigger problem is that Elder is at best misleading about when this disparity started and what caused it. The claim that the racial disparities in non-nuclear homes did not exist during slavery and did not exist in the late 1800s and early 1900s is demonstrably false. Scholars such as Brenda Stevenson, Stephen Mintz, and Orlando Patterson have written about how enslaved families were frequently split up during slavery. Patterson, who Elder actually quoted in a, on a different topic in a PragerU video, has written a lengthy essay in a book entitled Rituals of Blood, which specifically talks about how this impacts Black family structure today. Mintz estimates that about one in four enslaved children, one in four enslaved children, grew up with a single parent, usually a mother, a far higher percentage than for white children. About one in ten, according to Mintz's estimates, grew up without either parent. Furthermore, Stevenson, Mintz, Patterson, and other scholars have brought up the issue of what are called cross-plantation families. Some slaves married and had children with other slaves who lived on different plantations. Thus, Patterson calls attention to the, quote, so-called abroad husbands, forced to spend long periods of time away from their quote-unquote wives, who lived on plantations very far away, end quote. Mintz writes that, quote, Even in instances in which marriages were not broken by sale, slave children often grew up apart from their father, seeing him only on weekends or once during the week, end quote. On the large plantations, Mintz estimates that one-third of enslaved fathers were owned by a different master than their wife, Meaning that they could only visit their family with permission of their master. On smaller landholdings, two thirds of fathers lived on different farms from their wives. Quote, in addition, end quote, wrote Mintz, quote, many large slaveholders had numerous plantations and frequently shifted slaves, splitting families in the process. Renting out slave fathers was also common. End quote. Mintz goes on to say, quote, even in two parent families, Children frequently reported that they spent little time with their parents. End quote. He further estimated that at least one in two enslaved children quote, grew up apart from their father, either because he lived on another plantation, had died, or was white and refused to acknowledge his offspring. End quote. Now, it is impossible to pinpoint the exact number of black children who grew up in non-nuclear families under slavery, although we clearly know that it was much higher than the percentage of white children during that time who did. But we have better data available from the late 1800s and early 1900s that corroborates the claims of the scholars that I have just mentioned. In an article published in the February 1994 edition of the American Sociological Review, historian and population studies expert Stephen Ruggles conducted an in-depth analysis on black families, starting in 1880. At first glance, the difference in rates of households headed by single parents among black and white children in 1880 looks to be only a few percentage points, and the gap was even smaller in 1910 and 1940. This is likely what Elder was referring to when he mentioned census records, but as Ruggles makes clear, quote, Measurements by households minimize or minimizes race differences in family structure, end quote. He explained that it was also necessary to consider children living with no parents or living with single parents, quote, who were not household heads and who resided in subfamilies and secondary families, end quote. Now, once the percentages of children living without one or both parents in extended family households was included, Ruggles found that the disparity became immense. In 1880, 24.2% of black children four and under lived with a single parent or no parent at all, compared with 7.2% of white children four and under. Among black children and white children ages five to nine, the percentages were 28.8 and 11.8, respectively. Among children 10 to 14, the percentages were 37.1 and 19.6. Large gaps were also found in 1910, 1940, and 1960. In these years, the mean rate of black children 14 and under living without one or both parents was about 30% compared to a mean rate of about 10% for white children of the same age. Ruggles determined that black children in 1880 had significantly higher rates of parents who were deceased as well as rates of parents who were living but absent. Going back further, Ruggles estimates that that among unenslaved black children 14 and under in 1850, the percentage without two parents was almost three times greater than among white children, at 47.4%. Indeed, rather than being looked at as distinct from systemic racism, we should view racial disparities in non-nuclear homes as themselves a byproduct of systemic racism. Now, elders claim that welfare must be the root cause of racial disparities in non-nuclear homes due to the rise in percentage of black out-of-wedlock births since the 1960s fundamentally fails to distinguish fails to distinguish between root causes and exacerbating factors. A root cause explains why the disparity existed to begin with. Exacerbating factors are what later caused the rate of black single-parent homes to further increase. And slavery is what explains why possible exacerbating factors have impacted black families at a higher proportion than white families. Now let us assume for a moment, for the sake of argument, that welfare has been the primary exacerbating factor. We are still left with the conclusion that welfare has had this impact due to the fact that black families were, in the aggregate, more vulnerable as a result of slavery, and that slavery had left black people disproportionately likely to be poor, and therefore more likely to end up on welfare. The same applies to other proposed explanations, by the way. Another important point is that as ta Coates has laid out, while the percentage of black children born out of wedlock Has gone up greatly since the 1960s, the rate of -of out-of-wedlock births for black women has gone significantly down. The increased percentage of black babies born out of wedlock is a byproduct of the fact that rates of birth among married black women have decreased even more than out-of-wedlock birth rates have. So while it is certainly possible that welfare has been an exacerbating factor in the percentage of black kids growing up in non-nuclear homes, It is worth noting that the percentage of American kids as a whole, as well as the percentage of black kids being born out of wedlock, continued to rise after laws enacted in the 1990s increased restrictions on receiving welfare payments. So the claim about the lines of welfare payments and out of wedlock birth rates running concurrently is at best misleading.
1: And there was a report called the Moynihan Report uh, the negro family a case for national actions written by a liberal by a man who became uh, a democratic senator for the, from, from new york and at the time 25 percent of black kids were born outside of wedlock he said my god this number is is horrific if we don't do something about it it could get even higher well fast forward 25 percent of white kids are now born outside of wedlock it is the number one problem in this country and what we've done in my opinion is we've economically incentivized women to marry the government and we've allowed men to abandon their financial and moral responsibility
0: Elder here references the Moynihan Report's warnings about racial disparities in non-nuclear homes, while neglecting that the report identified slavery as the root cause of the problem. Moynihan quoted Nathan Glazer as posing the question of, quote, Why was American slavery the most awful the world has ever known? End quote. He, Moynihan then stated, quote, The only thing that can be said with certainty is that this is true. It was. American slavery was profoundly different from, and in its lasting effects on individuals and their children, indescribably worse than any recorded servitude, ancient or modern, end quote. Now, Elder, in a case of perhaps scoring in his own goal, accidentally references that racial disparities and out-of-wedlock birth rates already existed by the time federal welfare programs were expanded in the 1960s. And the way that he does this is when he claims that the percentage of white children born out of wedlock has increased to 25%, which he mentions being roughly the black out-of-wedlock birth rate at the time of the Moynihan Report, which came out in 1965, not 1970. Now, according to the Brookings Institution, the percentage of white children born out of wedlock was just over 3% in 1965. Now, if we look at this alongside Elder's own data, the racial disparity in out of wedlock births for black and white kids has arguably narrowed, since black kids, according to Elder, are now three times more likely than white kids to be born out of wedlock, but were roughly eight times more likely than white kids were at one point.
1: <clears throat> Blacks are more pro life than whites are. Blacks were more anti gay marriage. Than than whites were. That's one of the reasons that proposition passed here in California is because of the way blacks and browns voted. Again, I didn't vote that way, but it's the way a lot of blacks and browns did. Um, uh, Blacks want to be wealthy. One of the reasons Donald Trump is getting about twenty-five percent of blacks, which is five times, by the way, the the percentage that Mitt Romney got, is because uh, of Donald Trump's swagger and his uh, and his uh, uh, being proud that he's made money. Uh, and so, uh, and, and in the inner city... Wait, that's a really fascinating little piece right there. Because one, I never, one, I, one more quick one. This is yeah. really important. Um, the Democratic Party is completely beholden to the teachers' union and vice versa. Uh, the union is adamantly opposed to vouchers where the money follows the kid rather than the other way around. Inner city black women uh, and fathers in inner city, black, uh, brown women and brown fathers want vouchers. They realize the schools suck. I went to Crenshaw High School in South Central. Right now, 3%, that's not a typo, 3% of kids can do math at grade level. I'm going to send my kid to that school because I don't have enough money to send my kid to a better school?
0: In his attempt to claim that more black people would vote Republican if it weren't for Democrats supposedly race-baiting, Elder brings up black people being more opposed to gay marriage than white people in the aggregate. Now, while it's true that in the aggregate, and, and talking about in, clarifying that you're talking about in the aggregate is very important here for accuracy, In the aggregate, black support for gay marriage is lower than white support, that's true. But the window of opportunity for Republicans to capitalize on this and attract large numbers of black voters away from the Democratic Party with this issue is likely gone, because both black and white support for gay marriage has increased so much in the last decade. Furthermore, black millennials, who will increasingly make up a larger share of the black electorate the more time goes on, were found in a 2014 study to be significantly more supportive of same-sex marriage than older white voters were. Elder also says that many low-income black children are trapped in failing public schools that don't give them the education they need to succeed and that many of their parents would like school vouchers, which Democrats oppose. I actually agree with school vouchers, although the devil is in the details with them as a policy issue, but this fundamentally contradicts Elder's claim that lower income black people have equal opportunities or even advantages when it comes to economic success. Additionally, it ignores the fact that what public schools kids can attend is heavily tied to where they live and that Democrats are generally much more interested in fighting neighborhood segregation than Republicans. We saw this with Trump's support for weakening Obama administration directives on fair housing and Biden's desire to largely reinstate them. And with regards to the equal opportunity issue, if, as Elder claims, many black kids are trapped in failing public schools where they're not getting the education they need, then that necessarily is going to affect their opportunities in terms of getting into colleges and getting good jobs. So in his attempt to make a point about school vouchers and sort of score points against Democrats and teachers unions, Elder actually undermines his own claims about black people having equal opportunities in America today. Now, Elder also claims that Donald Trump, who was not yet the Republican nominee at the time of this video, would receive about 25% of the black vote. He received about 8% of the black vote in 2016 and 12% in 2020, which was similar to what George W. Bush got.
2: How much of this is just a messaging problem by the Republicans? Because it seems to me, and I've said this several times, that someone like Tim Scott, who is a black Republican senator right from the south right he should be a hero not only of the black community but he should really be a hero of the left right because this is a successful but he should man. be an American hero he, he really should be I mean he should some certainly at least at the very least be bigger in the national debate why isn't he a bigger surrogate for whoever he's going to support I assume it
1: will be Republican
0: elder calls Tim Scott quote an American hero seven months after this interview when Scott talked about feeling that he'd been racially profiled by, cop, by cops, Elder took to Twitter and wrote the following, quote, Black Senator Tim Scott, Republican, South Carolina, whined about being stopped seven times. Did he get tickets? Did he fight them? If no tickets, special treatment, question mark, end quote. So Elder turned on Tim Scott fast. As soon as you go off of Elder's script one bit, he's likely to turn on you. Reuben needs to be careful.
2: Second Amendment. So doesn't this show you how stupid the words are, so what I did at the top
1: of the show? No, no, it shows you how the Democratic Party has evolved to the left and abandoned principles. My mom was a, was a Democrat. My mom was a Republican. My dad was a Republican all his life. And my mom stopped voting for the Democratic Party. And she said, as many people have said, I didn't leave the Democratic Party. They left me.
0: Elder accuses the, De- the Democratic Party of having, quote, abandoned principle, end quote, moved to the left and devolved. Now, that is is fundamentally at odds with the claim that many on the right, including Elder himself, make about the Democratic Party having favored slavery and segregation and still being the party of racism. If Elder admits that the Democratic Party has moved way to the left compared to where it used to be on the political spectrum, then he has inadvertently just admitted that the parties have drastically shifted and that the Democratic Party today is not the same party that backed slavery and Jim Crow. In other words, the Democratic Party changing positions on race has coincided with it becoming much more liberal, just as the Republican Party changing positions on race has coincided with it becoming much more conservative. Regarding JFK, who Elder implies at around this point of the interview was conservative, Elder is right that he wasn't a flaming liberal, and certainly was much more moderate than Ted. Uh, I would say that JFK would be more similar to a Democrat like Bob Casey Jr. than he would be to someone like Elizabeth Warren or Ed Markey. But it is not true that JFK was an overall conservative senator or president. He took a lot of moderate stances and some major conservative ones, but he also favored more open immigration policy, opposed teacher-led prayer in public schools, signed equal pay legislation for women, and promoted major expansion of public assistance programs through the new frontier. Basically, JFK should be labeled either a left-leaning centrist or a moderate liberal, significantly less liberal than where the party is today, but significantly more liberal than where the party had historically been leading up to his presidency. Elder also briefly implies, around this point of the interview, that the GOP has gotten more liberal. He doesn't elaborate at all, and it's an offhanded comment, so I'll only cover it briefly. Since the 1970s, the American Conservative Union has given conservative scores to all members of Congress, When these ratings started, there were four Republican senators still serving who ended up with lower lifetime conservative ratings than Joe Biden did as a senator, which means that their voting records were more liberal than Biden's was during his time in the Senate. Clifford Case of New Jersey had a conservative rating of a little over 2%. Jacob Javits had one of just under 4%. By 2019, Susan Collins, the Republican senator rated the most moderate, was scored as voting conservative about 43% of the time, making her far less liberal than the liberal Republican senators that were even in office in the 1970s and in some cases into the 80s country has
1: changed, in part, in my opinion, because of immigration, including illegal immigration. Uh, People who are coming to the country illegally from third world countries like Mexico, they don't know what I'm talking about when I talk about limited government. They believe health care is a right. They're taught that in Mexico. They're taught that other places. And they come here in America and they pull that lever for the Democratic Party, which is why, in my opinion, the left wants borders to be porous, because it changes the country. It changes the electorate. It changes the
2: demographics Mm -hmm. and all that. The
1: Democratic Party has not won the white vote since 1964. The more white people there are in the country, the worse Democrats do. The more left wing, the more people of color there are in the country, the best the left does.
0: Here, Elder comes very close to outright echoing white supremacist talking points by saying that open borders are bad because it makes the country less white. And he paints immigrants from countries like Mexico as lazy, entitled moochers. Blacks and Hispanics make up almost half the population of California. and elder portrays members of both groups as lazy and entitled, but yet he wants to represent them as governor. How can anyone expect him to advocate for the interests of blacks and Hispanics in California when he talks about them like this?
1: Some of the economics. Well, I, I, I wonder, let me ask you, why is it that nobody gave Dick Cheney love? Because Dick Cheney had a more progressive op- position on, on same sex marriage than Obama did. When Obama was still well, but, but e- Cheney, evol- evolving, Cheney. But Cheney, Cheney didn't have it
2: said, until he was out of office. So that's, uh, uh, you know, it's a little disingenuous what he did. He suddenly, still,
1: still, years before Obama said he was in favor of gay marriage, said, I'm in favor of allowing states to determine this. He said that years before Obama... Was that while he was
2: in office, though? I, I don't think that was while he was All, in all I
1: know was years before Obama, because when Obama came, became president in 2008, he not only said that he was in favor of traditional marriage, he said God was in the mix. All of a sudden, uh, years later, God's no longer <laughs> in the mix. I don't know how so was God was had- in the mix four years ago, then God got out of the mix. But anyway, uh, the point is that Dick Cheney said that he supported same-sex marriage on a state-by-state basis well before the left did, well before Obama did, well before Hillary did, got no love
0: elder criticizes liberals for not praising cheney for backing gay marriage now it is true that cheney opposed a constitutional ban on gay marriage as vice president and he did break with bush quite publicly on this issue Uh, this is one of the things incidentally that i have brought up to sort of dispute the idea that dick cheney was secretly running the bush administration and pushing it in a more right-wing direction however he did not voice support for same-sex marriage until he was out of office and he did virtually nothing to use his stature as a former U.S. representative and a former VP to promote it. For example, he failed to join the many prominent Republicans who signed amicus briefs to the Supreme Court calling for legalization of same-sex marriage. Saying that Cheney backed gay marriage, quote, well before the left did, end quote, is an oversimplification. While a solid majority of Democrats, including most of the ones in the highest levels of power, did not support gay marriage at the time that Cheney did in 2009, there was a significantly sized minority of politicians, such as Bernie Sanders, Russ Feingold, Ron Wyden, Nancy Pelosi, John Lewis, Deval Patrick, Jerry Nodler, Ted Kennedy, and oh yeah, Gavin Newsom, who did. There were also plenty of liberal and left-wing activists, celebrities, and groups who supported same-sex marriage, ranging from Jill Stein to Jon Stewart to Julian Bond to the ACLU. Does Elder really need us to recap the multitudes of Hollywood celebrities who were vocally against Prop 8 in 2008 in California, where Elder has mentioned living? Certainly. Supporting gay marriage in 2009 put someone well ahead of the curve in terms of where the majority of the country, including the solid majority of Democratic politicians, were at. I brought this up with Bernie Sanders' LGBT rights record. It is true. It is true that there was a big difference between backing gay marriage in 2009 versus 2012 or 2013, but acting like Cheney was a lone voice in the wilderness because he tepidly backed gay marriage in 2009 is an oversimplification, like so much of what Elder says in this video.
2: Last night I saw you, uh, you gotcha. you're on CNN, Don Lemon, who I had on last week, was on the show last week. He was talking about Tavis Smiley, yeah. and you're not a fan of Tavis.
1: Um, I've known him a long time. He's a, he, he doesn't preach what he practices. What he, what he is is a hardworking guy who came from Indiana with a big poor family uh, and has done quite well with his life. And instead of telling people, bust your butt, do what I did, work hard, stay focused, it's the man's out to get you. Uh, social justice, racism, racism everywhere. It's nonsense. Hollywood.
0: Here, Elder criticizes Tavis Smiley for working hard and then talking about systemic racism instead of only focusing on encouraging other black people to work harder. Now, I'm generally not a fan of Tavis Smiley. Uh, He is, last I checked, pretty homophobic, so I'm reluctant to defend him here. However, Elder's argument seems to have the implied premise that if a person has to work harder to succeed due to obstacles that are rooted in the history of racial inequality, that they should never complain about these obstacles and just be grateful for their success even though they had to work harder because of systemic racism. This strikes me as overly simplistic thinking. It also contradicts Elder's stance, which he affirmed just weeks ago, against transgender athletes. When a black person has to work harder to be successful because of the history of racial inequality in this country, Elder tells them to suck it up and keep quote, busting their butt. But when it comes to trans women competing in women's sports, Elder is determined to have a completely level playing field with nobody having any kind of advantage.
2: Voting Republican. Yeah, well, yeah, but there's, can't, there's
1: can't, this can't. idea that, okay, we're going to go on this. Can't, you can't say it, out. You can't can't say say it, it out loud. Yeah, name one A-list young actor or actress who's an out-of-the-closet Republican. Just one. Young? I mean, yeah. yeah I mean, 2030s, I mean, you, you can do it once you're Clint Eastwood, once you're Kelsey Graham. John Voight doesn't count as young, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but somebody in his 2030s, Jennifer Lawrence uh, age star, name yeah. one. There's got to be somebody. Right. They can't be 100% uh, left wing, but they will not say so because they know they won't get. Parts. Right, and you would say that's not necessarily because they believe those things as much as just the structures in place. It's, it's uh, the bigotry in Hollywood. The, the, the open-minded, empathetic people, uh, they're fine as long as you don't say something that pisses them off.
0: The argument here is that people should not be denied work for political views. That is a defensible stance, but Elder forgot it a year and a half later. When Donald Trump called for NFL players to be fired if they kneeled during the national anthem, Elder defended him. It's only cancel culture when the left does it, apparently.
1: Uh, One of the most underpolled things in this country is how black people are pissed off about illegal immigration. Uh, When I was younger, there was a movie that came out in the 70s called Car Wash. Mm -hmm. Uh, Richard Pryor was in it, um, and George uh, George Carlin was in it. And it was about a day in the life of this car wash uh, in South Central, not too far from where I, I grew up. Virtually all the employees were black. I defy you to go to a car wash in South Central now and see any, any employee who's black. Illegal immigrants have come over and taken over this business, uh, and black people see it and they, and they realize it and they are angry about it." Uh...
0: Now, I'm not sure that a movie is a good substitute for actual data, call me crazy, but this message here fundamentally contradicts what Elder has been saying for the last 45 minutes. He has previously criticized black people from believing that they have been held down and prevented from succeeding by the system. Now he is saying that the system is taking jobs away from black people and giving them to illegal immigrants. Well, which is it? It's just another contradiction that we see in this interview. So that's it for today. As I've said, this is this is essentially a one hour veritable gold mine with the exception of a few things like the stuff he says about the drug war. It's essentially a veritable gold mine of absurd statements that I can pick apart. But I had to sort of limit myself for purposes of this podcast. Perhaps I'll do a bonus episode soon where I look at some of the other crazy stuff that Elder has said in this interview. So if you live in California, whatever you do, you've got to make sure that you go to vote during the recall election so that you can keep Gavin Newsom in office and prevent Elder or some other right-winger from taking his place and serving as governor until probably the beginning of 2023. And if you don't live in California, but you know somebody who does, please show them this podcast. Uh, In fact, if you know anybody else, please show them this podcast. Thank you. Until next time, peace out.